This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Loving Father, as we submit ourselves to your word this morning, as we are gathered together to sit under your word, we pray for ourselves the same thing we sang over our children. Please speak, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 69 together. And this is a pretty difficult psalm to pray. And I'm not just talking about the fact that it has 36 verses that we went through. It's quite long. As we pray Psalm 69 together this morning, I wonder if anyone else found some of the content of the prayer to be a little off-putting. You don't have to raise your hand, but as we prayed through Psalm 69, was there any section of that psalm, of that prayer, that made you feel uncomfortable saying out loud? Any of it surprise you? Well, speaking for myself, there's one section of the psalm, about two-thirds of the way through, that I find very surprising. And I'm referring to the big old section of curses that start in verse 22, 22 through 28. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. What are we supposed to do with passages like these in the Bible? So if you turn to page four in your bulletin, we're going to walk through the psalm together. If you look at the beginning of the psalm, it starts in a pretty normal way as far as psalms go. With beautiful and poetic language, David, King David pours his heart out to God in prayer. Verse one, he says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And as David cries out, he tells God about his problems. He talks to God about the things that he needs, and he has a lot of problems. He has a lot of needs. He says, my troubles are piled up so high it feels like I'm drowning. My enemies are causing me so much heartache that it's actually hurting my body. David feels ashamed, and he feels anxious, and he feels attacked, and he feels alone. I don't think anybody can read this psalm and think that David is having a good day. He's probably not having a good few years. And so David begs God to help him. In verse 17, he says, Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Draw near to me, redeem me, set me free because of my enemies. So this is all pretty normal stuff, but then things take a turn. This is what we call a hard pivot. David goes dark, picking up in verse 23. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Add guilt to their guilt. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. David goes real dark. 
He calls down a series of imprecations, which is a great word. An imprecation is a curse. David calls down a series of imprecations. That's why this psalm is considered to be an imprecatory psalm. It's an imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm that's marked by curses. He says, blind them, O God, burn their house down. Show them no mercy. And he tops it all off with a poetic variation of the classic curse, go to hell. Verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Kill them forever and send them straight to hell, God. I don't think you have to be a Christian to find this uncomfortable. You just have to be a halfway decent human being to wrestle with whether or not it's okay to think these kinds of thoughts, let alone say them to say them in church, to say them to God. So what are we to do with the imprecatory psalms? Should Christians still pray these prayers? Or should we just cross out the curses from our psalms and skip past them when we pray them in our Bibles? Well, given that we've already prayed this psalm together this morning, you probably know my answer. I do think we should still pray these prayers. And in my sermon, I want to give us two reasons why I think it's important for Christians to continue to pray the imprecatory psalms. So here's the first reason we should pray these prayers. They're in the Bible. We should pray Psalm 69 and not just the comfortable bits. We should pray all of Psalm 69 because this prayer is in the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3.16 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this. He writes, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now notice Paul doesn't say some scripture. He doesn't say select passages are useful. He says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful. And so this begs the question, In what way are imprecatory psalms useful? How do these angry psalms, these cursed psalms, train us in righteousness? Well, to answer this question, I think we need to talk about the purpose of the psalms. So what are the psalms for? Well, for thousands of years, the psalms have functioned like a classroom for prayer. If we want to learn how to pray, We pray the Psalms. This is how we become fluent in prayer. The Psalms teach us to talk with God. The the Psalms teach us to have a conversation with God. And as Psalm 69 shows us, the Psalms are very beautiful poetry, but they're anything but neat and clean, right? The Psalms are often messy, they're passionate, and they're raw. And I thank God for that. The Psalms are true to life. The Psalms are adequate for our experience. They are capable of handling the whole range of the things that we think and the things that we feel as human beings. The Psalms lead us through the highs and through the lows, through hope and despair, through joy and through burning rage, through anger. Anger is where the imprecatory Psalms really shine. Now, depending on which Old Testament scholar you ask, 
There are 30 or so psalms that are considered imprecatory psalms. Roughly 30 psalms include curses. And 30 is a lot. If you look at the book of Psalms, it contains 150 psalms. So that means one out of every five psalms is a curse psalm. It's 20%. It's a lot. So what does this tell us? Well, if the Psalms exist to teach us how to pray, this tells me that God really thinks we need to learn how to pray through our anger. This tells me that God thinks we need to learn how to deal and process our anger in a faithful way. And it's really not that hard to understand why if you stop and think about it, even for a little. Even if you've never experienced the hurt and the pain that David has that leads to this burning anger that causes him to say these curses, even if you haven't personally experienced that, all you need to do is spend an hour reading the news to understand why somebody might pray like this. In virtually every news cycle, there is enough lying and stealing. There is enough violence and injustice that goes unpunished that if you really stop and feel it, it would make you go insane with anger. When I stop and really think about war, the war in Ukraine, the wars around the world, when I stop and really think about abusers preying on children in church, the imprecatory psalms actually make a lot of sense to me. When I stop and really think about it, about the injustice in the world, the evil in the world, I would actually be more concerned if we didn't have psalms like this in the Bible. We need these prayers to express and work through the anger that we feel. In his book on the psalms, theologian David Taylor says this is why these kinds of psalms, these imprecatory psalms are in the Bible. This is what he writes. He says, we trust that God has given us the angry psalms, by which he means the imprecatory psalms, We trust God has given us the angry psalms to help us feel angry without being undone by our anger. We trust that God has given us these psalms to rescue us from the desire to do violence to others. We trust that God has given us these psalms to heal us and to unite us and to show us the possibility of a faithful anger. God knows us, and God loves us. He knows we need help. We need help dealing with the painful things that we experience. We need help processing our emotions, especially our anger. This is why these psalms are in the Bible, and I think this is why we should pray them. And this brings us to the second reason why we should pray these psalms, And I think this builds on everything that I've just been talking about. The second reason we should pray psalms like Psalm 69 is this. They stop us from being hurt people who hurt people. The imprecatory psalms stop us from being hurt people who hurt people. When we get hurt, we tend to hurt other people in return. And sometimes that's on purpose and sometimes it's unintentional. But praying the imprecatory psalms helps to disrupt this cycle of being hurt people who hurt people. And again, I appreciate how my friend David Taylor describes this. He says, when we get hurt, what happens is we typically go from sad, feeling sad, 
to being mad to doing something bad. Sad, mad, bad. And I see this play out with my kids every single day. One of my kids steals a toy from the other one, and first there's sadness. Hey, that's mine. I was playing with that. And then you can just see it in their faces. Sadness becomes anger, rage kicks in, and then it often progresses to something bad. Hitting their sibling that stole it from them, or calling them a name. I watch this happen every day with my kids, and honestly, I watch it play out every day in my own life, in your lives. Adults do the same thing. The stakes are just quite a bit higher. Sad, mad, bad. That's how we typically work. And Taylor says the move from sad to mad is a natural one. But the movement from mad to bad, where we sin against our neighbor, this move is always a choice that we have. And he says the imprecatory psalms save us from the decision to do violence to ourselves or to somebody else. Put a little bit differently, the imprecatory psalms disrupt this sad, mad, bad progression. It's really simple, sad, mad, bad, but I think it's incredibly profound. And so I wanna unpack it a little bit for us this morning. So imagine getting hurt by somebody. Imagine a neighbor gossips about you, slanders you. Maybe a colleague undermines you or a child lies to you. Imagine a friend betraying you or a parent abandoning you, a spouse breaking their vow. Imagine a politician abusing their authority or a pastor neglecting theirs. All of these things hurt, and of course, some hurt more than others, but all of them hurt. And at the risk of oversimplifying the mystery and the complexity of our experience of emotion, I wanna describe what often happens with us. When we get hurt, it makes us feel sad. And then sadness often turns into anger. Sad becomes mad. And this is good, actually. It's good to be angry when bad stuff happens to us. Anger is not a bad emotion. God designed us to feel angry at times, and for good reason. So the question is not, should we ever be angry? Yes, of course, we should. God made us to be angry at times. The question is not, should we ever be angry? The question is, what should we do with our anger? What should we do when we get mad? And I love how Mr. Rogers asks the question in the song that Elise sang to our children a moment ago. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. I don't think this is just a song for the kids, is it? If we want to grow into mature men and women of faith, how we answer this question is so important. We need to learn how to deal, to process the anger that we feel. So what do you do with the mad that you feel? Well, as I've processed and tried to work through my own anger and have watched other people do the same, I think there are basically three options before us when we feel mad. And two of the options are bad and one of them is good. So the first bad option 
is to let your anger burn. So just let it burn freely. When you feel mad, you let it burn unbridled and unconstrained. If someone hurts you and you feel mad, you let them know about it. This first option usually results in violence, sometimes physical, maybe hitting somebody, punching a wall, breaking something. Sometimes the violence is with our words. We say things we regret later, things that can't be unheard. That's the first option, just let it burn. The second option is to bottle our anger up. Instead of unleashing our anger on the world, we push it down, we bury it, or at least we try to. We pretend like we don't feel it, we pretend like it's not there. For those of us who have a tendency to bury our feelings, especially our anger, you know how this plays out. Bottling up our anger is like swallowing a grenade right after we've pulled out the pin. It's always only a matter of time before we blow. And shrapnel hits everybody who's in the blast zone. These are bad ways of dealing with our anger. And how often do we choose these things? How often do we choose to process and deal with our anger like this? But there's a third option before us, and this is the good one. Instead of, instead of letting our anger burn, instead of burying it, the third option, the third way is to bring our anger to God in prayer. This is the third option, to bring our anger to God. And this is exactly what David does in Psalm 69. This is what we see. This is what the imprecatory psalms, these cursed psalms, train us to do, to bring our anger to God. They invite us to bring our anger to God, to let it burn in his presence. In the presence of God, that's the safest place for your anger. Psalm 69 shows us that God wants us to do this. He wants us to bring our anger, to expose it to him. And he doesn't just give us permission, he gives us the very words to articulate our rage, and they're quite graphic words. If you're angry, they're very helpful to say. <clears throat> King David models it for us. He's been attacked, he's been mocked, he's been abandoned, and he's sad. And then he gets mad. But instead of lashing out, instead of burying his rage, he brings it to God. And it is not pretty, is it? What he says in verses 22 to 28 is not pretty. I want to be super clear about that. Praying that your enemies would be blinded and damned is ugly. It is not pretty. To feel that way about anyone, even your enemies, is not good for your heart. Those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of feelings are poison. They're corrosive. And they'll destroy you if you don't deal with them. So I don't want anyone leaving this morning thinking that by telling you it's good to pray the imprecatory psalms, I don't want you to hear me saying it's good to hate your enemies. Because, my friends, it is not good to hate your enemies. If the life and teaching of Jesus teach us anything, it's that the exact opposite is true. One of the most, if not the most, compelling thing about Jesus is that he loved his enemies. Jesus not only loved his enemies, he died for them. Instead of cursing his enemies from the cross, which he had every right to do, he was Jesus. What did he do? Instead of cursing them, he prayed for them, right? He said, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. So I don't want you to get the wrong idea. The reason we should pray the imprecatory Psalms is not so that we can revel in our hatred. It's not so that we can just stew in our bad feelings and feed off of the hate. We should pray these Psalms because they can actually help us stop hating. What makes these prayers so good is not the hate. What makes these prayers so good is the honesty. It's the honesty. Honest prayers are the best prayers. And sometimes we are honestly so mad that we wish somebody would die. And we pray that God would smite them down. And if you want to stop feeling that way, because it's not good to feel that way, you have to name it. You have to be honest about it. You have to talk with God about how we feel. And the imprecatory Psalms help us do just that. They help us to get our anger and our hate out in the open, to bring it before his presence so that the God of love and justice can deal with it, can deal with our situation. And he can deal with us. He can change us and change our hearts. The way to become the people God wants us to be, the way to become the people God wants us to be is to be honest about the people that we are right now. And sometimes it's not pretty, is it? And so as a pastor, the only reason I'm comfortable telling you to pray the imprecatory psalms, they're dangerous psalms to pray, but the only reason I'm comfortable telling you and encouraging you to pray this psalm is because I believe in the power of prayer. I believe God is real and that God changes us when we pray. It's very hard to imagine praying an imprecatory psalm in the presence of the crucified Messiah and coming away unchanged. I don't think we can really pray to the God who loves his enemies and continue to keep, love, keep hating our enemies for very long. Now, why do I say this? I say this because honest prayers lead to our transformation. God changes us when we pray honestly. When we bring our raw and our unfiltered selves to God in prayer, that's when the good stuff happens. That's when the Holy Spirit transforms us and makes us more like Jesus. And of course, it might not happen all at once. It very rarely does, but it does happen. It will happen when we pray to God honestly. At the end of Psalm 69, we see David's own transformation when he prays to God honestly, when David is honest with God, when he brings his anger, his unfiltered rage to God, God changes his tune. Instead of going from sad to mad to bad, a miracle happens. God intervenes. David goes from sad to mad to glad. If you keep reading past the curses, we see another hard pivot at the end of the psalm. Starting with verse 30, David ends the psalm with a triumphant call to trust God. A triumphant call to praise and worship the Lord he knows and loves and who knows and loves us. Verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Let the oppressed see and be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. 
For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own that are in bonds. So what we're seeing here is instead of David doing something bad, David brings his anger to God. He entrusts himself, his situation, and his enemies to the God of love and to the God of justice so he doesn't have to do something himself. And this is a breakthrough. There's not really a better word for it. This leads to a breakthrough. This honest prayer leads to a renewed sense of trust and hope in God. And so I want to end this morning by asking the question, should we pray the imprecatory Psalms? The answer is yes, especially if you're feeling angry. Should we pray the imprecatory Psalms? Yes, but only if we want God to change us. Let's pray. Loving Father, I thank you that you are not afraid of our anger. Lord, you designed us with a whole range of emotions, and I thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices, but you train us, you teach us to pray. You lead us and guide us by your spirit to be angry and to not sin. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to become fluent in the language of prayer. For those of us who feel angry, Lord, help us to bring our anger to you, and I pray that you would transform us, that you would help us to not hate our enemies, but to love them and to pray for them. We pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.